everybody, welcome to In the Kitchen. This is uh, the episode that is in preparation for Sunday, August the 2nd, where we'll be studying James 3, uh, 13 through 4, 10. So uh, you'll see as we read it here, th this meeting in the kitchen started uh, a year and a half ago or so, and uh, it was basically me uh, at the time wanting to go, man, I want to hear the voices of other people as we look at the same text, the questions they might have, the processing they might do. Um, a lot of times in gathering around a table like this to talk about a text, my eyes are open to things that questions people have about the text or ideas from the text or things they've been taught in the past that because they're coming from a different state of life or a different experience, uh, it broadens my horizon in preparation to teach. So hopefully this will be helpful. The way we begin every week uh, is by reading the text together. So I'm going to read it right now and then we'll just have a little, uh, little conversation. So James 3.13 says this. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace? Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. That's our text for this coming Sunday. So, um, the second step in our In the Kitchen meeting tends to be that I'll kind of walk through what I'm, what I'm planning to teach. So, it's not... Um, it's not set in stone. It's a little bit of a rough outline, just some kind of overview here. But as I'm prepping for Sunday, um, I'm, I'm looking at this and I'm recognizing that it's kind of a juxtaposition of two different worldviews, right? You've got this wisdom that's from above, and then you've got kind of the machinations or the schemes of the earth. Um, the world in which we live says you've got to be fighting for yourself and you've got to always be getting whatever you can get. And it doesn't matter who you have to kill or who you have to climb over or who you have to stab in the back or what you have to do. Because of your ambition, because of your own pride, because of your own jealousy, you shove everything else out of the way in order to get what you want. And, and so there at the end of chapter 3, I feel like James is going, there's, there's two different mental approaches, and your physical approach is going to be guided by your, by your mental approach. What's going on in your heart, as he's been saying again and again, is going to be demonstrated in your actions. So he says you have to pay attention to the, what kind of wisdom you're, you're operating on. Are you operating on the wisdom of the world? which says do whatever you got to do to advance or to get what you think you deserve? Or do you operate on the wisdom of God that is 
peaceable and gentle and just and gracious. You know, a harvest of righteousness is sown by those, uh, is reaped in peace by those who sow peace. There's two totally different mindsets. Then as you get into chapter 4, he starts talking about the dissension that, that's happening in the church, which I find so interesting because in Acts 2, which so James was part of the Jerusalem church, you look at Acts 2, at the end of Acts 2, there's like this beautiful harmony. I mean, they're, they're worshiping together, they're breaking bread in one another's homes, they're selling all their possessions to give to anybody in need. They're, it's like this, it's like this, you know, Garden of Eden kind of minds us. It's like the dream of what you want your church family to be, where we're all just caring for each other and loving each other. It's so interesting that in the in the surpassing years between when Acts 2.42 happened, not when it was written, because we know James was written first, but when Acts 2.42 happened and when James writes this book, some things have kind of come off the rails for the church, right? They've started to fight and quarrel, and there's all this division and all this envy and this jealousy. I think that's a great warning to me of how quickly a church of people who are kind and generous and loving and selfless and gracious and sowing in peace can, can turn apart. And, and what also is interesting is he writes at the beginning about the fact that he's he's writing to these uh, to the church that's spread out, the Jewish church that's dispersed. So this isn't even all concentrated in one place. These are people who are spread out. And warring with each other. There's all kinds of military language in here. There's all kinds of battle language. And so there is this mindset here of if you've got a war going on inside you, there will definitely be a war going on outside of you. Does that make sense? So if there's an internal struggle of you fighting between the wisdom of God as a follower of Jesus, if, if I'm a follower of Jesus and I've been called to lay down my life like he laid down his life, if I've been called to have the mindset that we see in the Sermon on the Mount that is loving and peaceful and patient and all these things. But I've got also the wisdom of the world or the schemes or the machinations of the world. And if those two things are warring within me, they will be made manifest in an external war between me and my brother. Because if I'm, if I'm being driven by selfish ambition or jealousy or pride, well, my, my desires are not going to align with yours and yours. And so all, we're going to all of a sudden have to come to heads. So my thought in teaching the text this week is to go, we, we have to get the internal war resolved. We have to make peace in our hearts so the internal war goes away, and then the external wars will go away. If we're not fighting for ourselves internally, then all of that external discord also will dissipate. Um, he talks about prayer here. I don't know that many of us, when we're, when we're chasing selfish things, think about praying. And he says, even in the cases when you do pray, you only pray to get what you want. You're not praying in alignment with God's will. And so you shouldn't be surprised it doesn't work because... God doesn't serve your whims, you know. So there, there are lots of real practical things in here. I'd say this last section, it's kind of the last half of, of the section we're studying at four, talks really about active things to do. Uh, that we have to resist the devil, that we have to submit to God. We have to come to him in humility. I'm obviously thinking of the prodigal son and the idea that even after all the selfishness and all of the ugliness and all of the um, all of the pride that was in place in, the, in the, the life of the younger son. He goes away, spends his father's fortune, that when he returns broken, the father wraps him up, right? So I see that here in James. And I don't know if James is thinking of Jesus' parable there, but I, I think that James is going, look, he gives more grace. You've been selfish, you've been prideful, you've been jealous, you've had all these fights and quarrels. Come back to God, resist the devil and his way of thinking, and humble yourself, and he will lift you up. Cleanse your hands, purify yourself. 
He talks about being wretched and mourning, and it's just this idea of really allowing the weight of your own wickedness to weigh on you. I think sometimes we want to set those aside. You know, we want to read a text like this and go, oh yeah, there are some jealous and, you know, some prideful people who need to, who need, they really need to hear this without ever grieving my own pride, without ever grieving my own selfishness. So um, that's kind of the way I'm planning to organize it. Um, I'll finish up in talking about coming back to God and knowing that we can receive grace at his hands. So that that's sort of my plan. What, what do you guys see in this or what are other questions you have or other ideas or thoughts? Don't all, don't all speak at once. <laughs> yeah, I kind of, when I was going, reading over the whole selfish thing, um, what story came up to, um, to me was Jonah and the big fish. And where he, you know, loved God, he knew God, uh, knew his word, but still he wanted to do what he wanted to do. He didn't want to listen to God and where he wanted to send him. And even though he uh, even interacted with uh, other people along the way, like even the people, um, the men on the boat, were they were like, well, who's your God? And they, I always think like, oh, you know, uh, they probably turned and started worshiping God, you know? So without him even knowing, he's still like, oh yeah, throw me, throw me in, you know, over the boat and everything will be fine. You know, he even had, uh, trust and he had faith that yeah as soon as you throw me overboard everything but still he didn't want to do it right. he was just still selfish thinking of himself well even others were turning to god and um and, and still even though he was i'm pretty sure he was showing like he had a struggle within himself um he was still uh, turning others without even knowing it and still finally at the end and then even as the story goes on, he uh, still, even when everybody turned and like, yeah, we're going to worship <laughs> the Lord. And even then he was like, oh, you know, even when, when God gave him the shade and I'm just like babbling on. <laughs> but you're right. At the core, at the he, core he of that kept, story. Yeah. He still kept thinking of himself. Yeah. Right, it was right. still his own selfishness, even when he gave him shade and everything. So I, yeah. yeah, that's good. And I think that's it, is the contrast of what happens in that um, in this passage is that you have somebody who's taking that wisdom from above or that one who's literally made friendship with the world. And that concept between what's good and bad about that is so stark in here and so much so that I think the we almost have some closing verses to this passage that are troubling. Um, in the, and four would be uh, nine. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. You know, you're like, gosh, that's just dark. Um, but when you stop and look at it, the very things that that friendship with the world does is that when it uses that phrase demonic, that it's, uh, it's earthly, unspiritual, and demonic, you look at it and say, this is destructive stuff. And so then when you stop and say, if the rest of the world is taking worldly wisdom, which is driven by our own passions, then it's going to be destructive to everybody, and we're going to have warring everywhere. And then you stop and turn on the evening news right now, and you're like, well, gosh, this is what it looks like. This is what happens when everybody's just pursuing their own passions. And it's not even to say that one's right and one's wrong. It's just that everybody's at war. And that instead, he then says, well, there's this other idea. 
And then that other idea, and I love the list that shows up in um, 17, but the wisdom from above is, and then he's got this list, first pure, peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy, good fruits, impartial, sincere, and it yields this harvest of righteousness, sown in peace. And you just look at it and go, or we can have the worry, and it all stems from my desires when I go after my my flesh and what it desires, or I go after his desires and what he's handing down from above. Right. Well, our, yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. Our culture is a great illustration of this. We live in a world where there's all these fights and quarrels. I was thinking, who do I know other than Jesus? This, that description in 17 is a perfect description of the heart and approach of Christ. Pure, peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy, good fruit, impartial, sincere. When we talk as a church all the time about how we're called to reveal Christ, both corporately and individually, that's what this is. Putting these things on puts Jesus on display, paints an accurate picture. But think about the owners of corporations or think about politicians or think about uh, world leaders or think even just think about local leaders or think about our neighbors. Like, do you know anybody that this describes other than Jesus? It feels like our culture has kind of evolved to a place where everybody's in it for themselves and, and so you're you're to me it's like so timely this text is so timely because i think we all feel it i think we all kind of sit around our kitchen tables and go man it just feels like you no know, the only thing anybody cares about is himself that's what james is talking about here he's giving us a recipe for resolution in that we all feel it the problem is a lot of times we feel it about everybody else, right? It's really easy, even as we're reading it together, it's really easy to have different people's minds or uh, uh, pictures pop in your head of all the people you know who are selfish and who are whatever, you know, not peaceable. But but I think to come back to the to the thing you were talking about at the end of uh, like in 4.8 or 4.9 where it's talking about that gloom and doom and that sorrow and grievance, I think the, the problem is a lot of times we're looking at other people and their selfishness, but we're not allowing the weight of it to affect us. And I think part of the reason that happens is that the church, the church in some ways, and I'm not just talking about our church, but Christianity has become organized organized around the idea of happiness and peace and, and feeling good and having your needs met. And we, we don't want to do, we don't want to do things and we don't want to have a pastor teach us that we should feel a, a weight or a sorrow or a gravity. We want the pastor to tell us how can we have a great marriage and how can we be a great dad and how can we you know, get all of our prayers answered and have all these good things. And here he's saying, look, there, there's a way to finding peace, but it isn't by satisfying your own desires. Yeah, the asking part on this is really tough, right? Because it says you ask, and, and it, the question is, do you ask, do you not ask? Because there's a little bit of that in there that uh, where it's it stops and says, uh, you desire and do not have, so you murder, you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. And you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passion. So there's one of those questions that, like, when I write out my first list, there's a question there. Are we asking or are we not asking? Right. And, and the answer is kind of bold, is that sometimes we don't even turn to God at all. And, be, and then when we do, because we're stuck into our own passions, and then when we do, what we ask for is only for our passions. It's right. not actually seeing the needs of others. It's not being concerned about what's going on. It's like... Well, Lord, this is what I need. This is how I need this scenario to go to best serve my desires and my passions. It reminds me of Habakkuk. So to go all the way back to Habakkuk, he begins that, that whole exchange by going, God, these are the things I want you to do. And it's a learning process for him 
to relinquish that and to trust in what God wants. By the end of the book, he's praying in alignment with, with God's will instead of Habakkuk's will, you know? One of the sad, sad things, I guess, it's just truth, but the, the word there, your passions, and then it uses it a little, um, that's 4-1, and then again in 4, um, your friendship with the world is enmity with God, that's not it. There's another section in there where, oh, it's 3, because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions, the word there is literally the hedony, and that's where we get the word hedonist, and it literally says, if you ask this way, you're basically a hedonist. And you're like, yeah, that's the definition of hedonism. And I just don't want to be called a hedonist. But what I do all the time is hedonism. Right. It's just about me. That brings up a great point for those of you who are prepping at home. Um, it is it is very helpful. Another good reason to have Bible software. If you don't know Greek, um, it can be very helpful to have a translation software that can give you insight into what these words mean in the original language. Because a lot of times... Um, the, the, they're taking a word that was much richer or, or was much broader and they're boiling it down to an English word that all that kind of does that but doesn't quite give it full justice. So it's nice as you're doing a study like this, literally I can, I can right-click on any word and it'll give me the Greek translation and what that word means in any context and a little bit of history on it and whatever. That's a really helpful tool in sort of expanding. Um, I had a, a similar kind of research in seven where it says, submit yourselves therefore to God, that word submit is not just the idea of like um, giving in or like cowing down, but it's the idea of allegiance. It's, a, it's about pledging allegiance to God. That submission is more about coming in alignment with a military leader. It's kind of a military idea. So as he's been talking here about resisting the devil and he's been talking about this fight, there is a, there is a call here that's almost like, sign up for the Navy, you know, like get involved in the fight, but make sure you're aligned with the right side of the battle. And there, there's lots in this text too about demonic activity and like resisting the devil and the, the demonic nature of that selfishness and pride. So it's interesting. Um, it's interesting to have some, some language software or some experience in language. So you can do a little bit of that work as well. What else do we see? What other questions we got? Way too easy. No, I got a, I got a ton here. Um, so I had a question about the jealousy and selfish ambition. So um, depending on the, the version, but it uh, in the very beginning, uh, verse fourteen out of three. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. So it comes up to that question: Is ambition wrong? Is jealousy wrong? So it's a, it's a little bit about that. God is a jealous God, but God is an angry God. But we know that our version of anger, in fact, James even says that the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God, that we shouldn't go and go, gosh, my goal today is to be, you know, jealous or to be ambitious. But he puts two adjectives in front of that. I guess it's adverbs, right? Um, bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. And that concept is like, well, all right, is there a jealousy that might be good? And I, what I need to avoid is bitter jealousy. Is there an ambition that might be good as long as it's not selfish? Like, would I have an ambition for you that would be good? I would have an ambition for peace for you, for goodness for you, for righteousness for you. And so that it's more of a question, but it was one that popped into my head as I read it. I just thought, 
well, wait a minute. He's actually saying there's a way of this that's really bad, but there might be a way that's good. I don't know about jealousy as much as ambition. Maybe both are wrong. No, I like that. And what I was thinking about when you said it is one of my favorite things, and it's like, it's like a long-term dream, but I love in, um, in Numbers when, when God affirms, it might be in Joshua. I think it's in Numbers. When God affirms Caleb, he says of Caleb, I'm affirming my servant Caleb because he's, he is zealous for my honor the same way I'm zealous for my honor. To me, that feels like an ambition and a jealousy for the glory of God. And God sees it in Caleb, and, and he doesn't just commend Caleb for his courage or his valor or his bravery. He's all those things. But he says, the thing I love about my servant Caleb is that he cares as much about my own glory as I do. Gosh, that's odd. Yeah. That's, that's what that kind of reminds me of. You take the bitterness and the selfishness out of ambition or jealousy. They could serve the purposes of God. But, again, we all stumble in many ways. Yeah. You know, it's hard to it's I hard pick to up 17 fun. other ways to be jealous without trying. Right. But there is this one idea of it that maybe there is a version of that, the character of God, that would be right when we were jealous for God. And we were jealous for the things God wants for his people. And we had ambition for others for good. Yeah. So anyway, that stuck out. I like in four, I, I mean, I don't like it, but I'm always struck. Anytime the imagery of adultery is used between us and God, our relationship with God, this idea of the church or God's people, Israel in the Old Testament, being God's unfaithful wife. You know, this idea that, that, that marriage is meant to be a picture of Christ in the church, and yet so often we find ourselves being uh, cheaters, you know, like cheating on God with, with our either our selfish ambition or our own agendas, the things we want, our own passions that are at war within us. Uh, I, I think it's interesting that he point blank says here, he calls us adulterous. I don't know that, I don't know that we feel, now granted, in our culture, adultery, it feels like more and more is just becoming... It doesn't have the outrage that it used to have with it, you know. I mean, it does to some degree, but to me, as a as a it used child, to be against the law, <laughs> right? Yeah, that feels like that's going away, sadly. But as a child of from a divorced family, you know, adultery is a big deal to me. You know, like that's a big deal to me. That weighs heavy on me. I don't want to be that. I don't want to be a cheater. I don't want to be a liar. I don't want to have all of these other lovers that I run around behind God's back with, you know, I, I want to be pure. I want to be faithful. So that idea of uh, that rebuke of being adulterous, it kind of makes me stand up a little bit. I, I grieve and mourn and weep and feel wretched and whatever. I want the weight of that. I, I like, I like the balance though. So in all of that, I've talked a couple of times here about the being wretched and mourning and weeping, but you have to see that, that it's bookended on either side with the grace of God, Right. Um, he gives more grace in six and also in 10, he will exalt you. There is a sense in which I don't have to exalt myself. I don't have to lift myself up. I can allow myself to feel the weight of my mistakes and trust that God will lift me to the right level, you know? Yeah. And what he's exalting you with is the wisdom from above. Right. I love that. That it's like, and he starts that this whole, this whole passage is, um, who among you is wise? And it's like, we all kind of drop yeah. our heads and look around right. like, ah, maybe not me. One, two, three, got it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I have one more question. Yeah. Um, I have a, a lot. But in, in 17, when he gives the list, but the wisdom from above is first pure and peaceful, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy, good fruits, impartial and sincere. First pure, then peaceable. What's that about? Why, I mean, not just give a list. It's like he's giving a laundry list. And when I go and do the laundry list 
or Eugenie, there's that kind of a thing where I'm like, well, first go get this. He, why is pure first? first? Well, doesn't that feel like it's so much about what this whole book has been about? Even if you think about the way the book is organized, there's all these action steps for our relationships, whether the way we speak, uh, the, the, the ways in which we show favoritism. There's all these practical things. But he starts at the beginning by going, none of the rest of that's going to matter if you don't get yourself right. You've got to look like James 1 really is about me receiving the implanted word. And then he goes, and this will work itself out in your relationships with others. Peaceable, peaceable doesn't make any sense in a vacuum. If it's just me sitting in a room by myself and I'm incredibly peaceable, it doesn't matter. It only matters. Totally impure. But pure, on the other hand, is a condition of my heart. You know, that can have, that's my thought life. That's my attitudes. I can be sitting in a room by myself, angry and hateful towards the world. I could be lustful. I could be jealous. I could be prideful. In, in isolation. So you have to start there, it seems like. I, I mean, I haven't, I love that question, but it feels like you've got to start there in, before you can head to peaceable. But I don't necessarily, again, know that we tend to do that. We tend to work on the external stuff because it's more evidentiary, you know, the, it's the stuff people see. Yeah, you want to jump things. further into this list. Yeah, yeah. Know? I want to be these things because people will notice it and whatever, but that comes back to selfish ambition. Yeah. But I, I think that purity is sort of a good first start. Yeah, it's true, because how can you be teaching someone something or, or telling them, oh, well, don't do this. Well, you're doing it yourself. Right. It's like, you know, you have to become pure before doing all, all the others. Good story. Yes. Yeah, and they're going to see it, and they're going to not be attracted yeah. at all. There's going to be no winsomeness in the character of God coming out of you, because of what they're going to see is the same thing they have, which is like, you're just the same fleshly person as I am. Well, as you can see, uh, there's a lot. We, I mean, we could go on and on. This meeting normally lasts an hour. For the sake of our purposes here, we're trying to keep them around 20 minutes. Um, but know that we'll be praying for you, and we hope this is, uh, you know, kind of primes the pump. This isn't the end of the conversation. You wouldn't want to take the things we've said and just teach them verbatim. Go to the text and let God speak to you. Write out your own questions, your own notes. Process it with somebody else. Um, but, but if some of you are taking on the challenge to teach this uh, in your own homes or your own apartments or whatever this week, uh, we'll be praying that God blesses that and that you're blessed in the process of preparation as well. And then tune in uh, next Tuesday for uh, for our next episode where we'll be looking at the next section here of, uh, of four and I think the beginning of five also. All right. God bless you. Have a great week.